All right. Uh, This morning in the New Testament, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the ninth chapter, and we're going to be in the ninth verse of the ninth chapter. This is a story, maybe a familiar one, where um, Matthew first meets Jesus. And I I want you to pay particular attention to um, the instructions that Jesus gives the other religious leaders as he responds to their complaints. Listen again for God's Word. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We um, came across a story recently that I assume is 100% historical, Uh, the story of a man from Tennessee who had never been to the big city in his life, and kind of in the backwoods area, hadn't really seen a lot of modern amenity sort of things, and he and his family go to Chicago for the first time, uh, and they pull into the parking lot of this huge uh, hotel where they're staying, and they walk into the lobby of the hotel, and there they see before them uh, the first elevator that this man from Tennessee has ever seen in his entire life. And so he's standing before the elevator, and as he's standing there wondering what you do in this weird boxy room, uh, an elderly lady comes by, and she sort of uh, hobbles along with her cane, and she walks into the doors of the elevator, and the doors close. And a couple minutes later, the doors open, and this young, beautiful, gorgeous young woman walks out. And the man turns to his oldest son, and he says, son, go get your mother. (laughs) I think very often in our lives, um, we are uh, inclined to think a lot about superficial change, right? We think a lot about uh, change that is skin deep, change that um, the world might notice but doesn't cost us a lot. And we are encouraged to think about superficial change in a lot of ways in our world today. Uh, I believe that in general, social media is a, a hotbed of superficial change, right? I, I want you to know what I had for breakfast this morning, and my happiness depends on how many people upvote it or retweet it or like it or whatever. Uh, and, and, and that idea we kind of make fun of on the social media level, but actually plays out on a lot of more important levels as well. I think think in general that we have gotten to a point in our culture where our politics are pretty superficial. Uh, I'm not interested in persuading you to believe what I believe. I just want to pass a law and and make you have to accept it. I'm not interested in changing your opinion, just changing the rules. Ooh, but you know who really struggles with the superficial change? It's parents. Parents struggle with this so much, and it's not our fault. Sometimes actually good parenting leads 
to this sort of superficial focus, um, but we've all done it. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. Uh, your son comes home, and they haven't done their homework, and so you say, no television until all your homework is done. Or, you haven't done your homework for a week? Fine, no television for a month until you learn your lesson. Or, um, one of your daughters steals clothes from another daughter without asking, and so you say, fine, you don't get to borrow clothes from your sister for six weeks because you didn't ask first before you took them. Right? And those are reasonable responses, but I think they're superficial. Right? I think on some level, we're trying to change behavior without getting to the root cause of that behavior. There's a wonderful book called Age of Opportunity that my small group has been reading. We're almost finished with it. Uh, and in it, um, the author, Paul David Tripp, talks a little bit about this idea. He says uh, that in general, um, we are obsessed with what our children do, but not necessarily what our children believe. He says, um, pretend with me that I have a big apple tree in my backyard and that every year it buds and grows apples. But just as the apples are ready to be picked, they rot and fall to the ground. After several seasons of this, my wife comes and says, when are you going to do something about this tree? Its only benefit to us is the brown mush that covers the backyard for several months in apple season. Can't you do something? So I think, and I ponder, and I come up with an idea. I tell my wife I'm going to fix our tree and that I'll be gone for an hour picking up the things that I need. Before long, I return to the yard carrying a stepladder, a pair of branch cutters, an industrial-grade stapler, and two bushels of apples. I carefully cut all the rotten apples off the tree and staple bright red delicious apples to it. Delighted that I have fixed the problem, I call my wife out to the yard to look at the tree. Ridiculous? Yes, ridiculous. Um, ridiculous because our goal isn't just stapling fruit on a tree, right? Our goal isn't just for the outward appearance to improve. We want to change the root. We want to change the tree so it produces good fruit in itself. Uh, and, and I think so often in our lives, even in our Christian lives, we are interested in fruit stapling. We're interested in saying, hey, I have this maybe socially unacceptable sin that I'm going to work on exchanging for a more socially acceptable one. Uh, hey, I want to change my behavior. Hey, I want to change my kids' behavior. Hey, I want to change the world's behavior, but I'm not really getting to the level of their heart. And I think this issue of heart change is what our passage in Genesis is all about. This issue of what does it mean to move from fruit stapling to root reconstruction? That's what Joseph has been working on with his brothers for the past few chapters. And we get a perspective of what heart change looks like in the words of Judah. Oh, re remember for a minute, um, Judah has been not a good character in this story, okay? Judah was the one of the brothers after uh, Joseph is uh, captured. Reuben convinces them not to murder their brother. Judah is the one who says, great, well, if we can't murder him, let's at least sell him into slavery in Egypt. And he masterminds that plan. Judah is the brother, actually has the most to benefit from getting rid of Joseph. Because Judah, because of Reuben's sin and Simeon and Levi's sin, Judah uh, probably is next in line for succession. He will maybe inherit all of his father's earthly wealth if he can get rid of Joseph. 
Now in this story, the one person that stands between Judah and that inheritance is Benjamin. Benjamin, the new favorite son. Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Benjamin, the last child, so Jacob thinks, of his favorite wife. And so Joseph has a plan, first, to protect his youngest brother. I'm going to take my youngest brother out of this situation because they tried to murder me. They might try to murder him. But second, Joseph has a plan to see if he can inspire his brothers, his half-brothers, to repentance, to heart change. And then Judah has this amazing speech where he reminds us what's happened earlier in the story. He, He tells us that he has become the surety for the boy, Benjamin, to his father. And then, verse 33, Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant, that means me, Judah, remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is a heart change moment. This isn't a superficial adjustment. This isn't a behavior change. Uh, Anytime in this story, Joseph could have revealed himself and said, hey, I'm your brother. Don't you feel bad about what you did? And they would have said, oh, yes, sir, we do. Um, but, But this is the moment Joseph has been looking for. This is the moment where he begins to recognize that his brothers have truly repented, that Judah asks, may I please take the place of Benjamin and be a slave for the rest of my life so that Benjamin can go free. This is heart change. This is an about face. He was the figure of Cain who murdered his brother Abel. Now he is his brother's keeper. Now he is the one who is a substitute for his brother. Uh, And and this moment doesn't fix what was broken. It doesn't um, repair the damage done to Joseph, but it gives hope for the future. It gives hope that Judah is a new person and that perhaps there is a new relationship that he might have with those around him. Uh, And and this changed heart results in different fruit, right? Jesus says you judge a tree by its fruit, and Joseph judges Judah by this revelation of his heart. And in a moment, everything changes. We're told that Joseph can no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. Have you ever had um, that experience of like being on the edge of tears, right? Where like that, that bulb starts in your throat and you can feel it and you're trying to swallow it down and you can't quite do it. And you know if anyone else says anything even remotely kind or helpful or supportive to you, you're just going to lose it, right? That, that's where Joseph is. Uh, and, and then Judah makes this pronouncement, and the floodgates open. And Joseph wept so loudly, the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. And he said, I am Joseph. Now, In this moment, it appears that the heart change of Judah leads to a heart change of Joseph, but I don't think that's what's happening. We've said last week that Joseph, whatever he says in chapter 50, is in the place of God in this story. 
And in this story, we have seen again and again in 42 we read last week and some of 43 that we didn't read this week. Um, and, and here again in chapter 44, 45, we've seen that Joseph has this incredible love for his brothers. Again and again in these stories, he keeps running away to cry and weep where no one will see because he has this heart for his brothers. He desperately wants to be reunited with them if there's some way that might happen. Uh, And in this moment, it's almost as though um, his heart isn't changed, it's just revealed. And this is how I think about God's heart for us, right? I, I think of it like like the waters of a river swollen to overflowing, crashing up against the edge of a dam, right? And it just takes the smallest of inclinations, the smallest of changes for that water, that river to break all its bonds, to overflow its banks, to flood everything beyond it with hope and grace. Um, This is the moment where finally Joseph gets to say what he's wanted to say and gets to do what he's wanted to do, where he throws off all his restraint and he is reunited with his family. That's what God is looking for in our story. It's not that God's justice isn't important. It is super important. Without God's justice, there's no hope for peace in this world or the next. There's no ultimate justice for villain or for victim. Good can only defeat evil if God defines and defends good absolutely. But when we begin to demonstrate heart change, it's all that's needed for the flood of God's grace to break forth and for us to be overwhelmed by His grace and goodness and mercy. The most famous story uh, that articulates this is perhaps, I think, the most important parable Jesus tells. It's the parable of the two brothers. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son, and we all know this story, but uh, it, it captures the heart of God so well. In a nutshell, there is two brothers. One brother goes to his dad and says, I wish you were dead because your value to me is economic, and if you were dead, I would have that economic value. So how about... I will just take my inheritance from you now and not ever have to talk to you again, and you don't have to to see me again, and I'll go off and have that money. And the father, heartbroken, says, okay, and he gives his son his inheritance. And the son goes out, and you know this story, he squanders his inheritance on wild living, and then at some point in the midst of his desperation and poverty, he remembers that even his father's employees are better treated than he's currently being treated. And so, he decides to go home and he makes a plan. And his plan is he's going to say to his dad, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired hands. Give me a job. The way Jesus tells the story, uh, as this young man is still far off, his father sees him. The implication is that his father has been, been watching for his son for weeks, months, years, we don't know. His father sees him while he's still far away, and he runs to him. And the son begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he can't even get the whole speech out. doesn't even get out the idea of, hey, can I be your employee before the father says, shut up about that. Uh, put on um, this, this robe and take this ring and here's sandals for your feet and let's have a huge party and we're going to celebrate that my son was lost and is now found, was dead and is now alive again. 
We, we get this beautiful picture in this first part of that story. I know there's a second part, but in that first part of the story, we get this beautiful picture of a God whose, whose grace is like a dam bursting. When we take the slightest step back towards home, when we take the slightest step towards heart change, God runs to us with grace and overwhelms us with more than we could have imagined or ever deserved. And in that, um, we see an understanding of how forgiveness works. Joseph, forgiving his brothers, has to make a choice. Joseph has to choose to say, hey, rather than you suffering what I suffered, rather than inflicting upon you what perhaps you deserve, a punishment for the things you did, I'm going to absorb that hurt into myself. I'm going to absorb that hurt into myself and let it die with me. That's what Jesus does, right? Jesus takes the hurt and the shame the pain and the brokenness of our sin, and rather than revisiting it on us as we deserve, He absorbs it into Himself, and our sin dies with Him on the cross. And through none of this, this is the cool part for me, through none of this does God's heart actually change. Our heart changes, right? When we, when we embrace that kind of true repentance, the turning away from our old life and the turning towards God, but God's heart really doesn't. And Jesus is trying to Help the Pharisees understand this in our passage in Matthew where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That God's heart has always been that He would desperately love to forgive us. He would desperately love to pour out His grace on us. It's not as though we have to do enough to earn it. We have to do the smallest possible thing because Even though our hearts can change, sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better, God's heart is consistent. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I shared a story a number of years ago. I'm going to share it again. Uh, It's from Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones tells the story of uh, the adoption of his middle daughter. He says uh, that when he and his wife adopted their middle daughter, they knew that she had been previously adopted by a family um, and that that previous adoption had failed. For whatever reason, uh, those parents adopted this little girl into their homes and then decided not to keep her and sent her back to um, the Child Protective Services process until she could be adopted by Tim and his family. After they adopted this little girl into their family, they learned... um, just from stories as they come up, that she had uh, never been to Disney World, and in fact, that her previous family had gone a number of times while she lived with them. But for one reason or another, every time they had gone, she had been left behind with a family friend. And what she had internalized was that that was because of her behavior, because of her actions. Whether that was the case or not, we don't know, but that's what she understood. So when Tim heard this story, he decided that um, he needed to take his whole family, including their youngest, their newest daughter, to Disney World. So they made a plan, and they set a date, and then um, he told her, hey, this is so exciting, um, you're going to love this. And she had 
seen all these pictures of Disney World and heard all these stories from her previous family and um, knew this was supposed to be this amazing, exciting thing. And he assumed that the challenges would be the normal challenges you have when taking a kid to Disney World. You know, what do you do when you see a freakishly oversized mouse advancing towards you? Or, you know, all of the, the how much money can we possibly spend on food this week or whatever. Um, what he didn't expect was um, what he calls a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. He says, after he announced this trip, in the month leading up to it, she did one thing after another that sort of took their breath away. She stole food when all she had to do was ask for food to receive it. She lied to her parents when it would have been easier just to tell the truth. She whispered horrible, hurtful insults to her older sister, carefully crafted to hurt her as deeply as possible. And as the days of the trip grew closer, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before they headed to Florida, he says he pulled his daughter into his lap to talk about her most recent escapade. And she said, I know what this is about. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And he said, all of a sudden he understood. He understood why she was acting out. He understood why all this bad behavior was coming. She was convinced that she wasn't going to get to go, so she was pre-offending, right? So she could earn the judgment she thought was coming. And so he said, by the grace of God, he avoided the normal response. The normal response being, well, if you don't change your behavior, maybe you won't get to go. Instead, he said, is our family going to Disney World? She said, yes. He said, are you part of this family? She nodded. He said, then you're going with us to Disney World. We'll talk about your choices, but you're not losing this trip. It would have been awesome if after that conversation, everything had gotten better, right? But it didn't. In fact, he said it continued to ramp up. And in the, the days uh, and the hours up to their trip, even uh, on the road, even on the hotel on the road, she continued to act out in dramatic ways, sort of spiraling out of control at every hotel and rest stop along the way. Still, he says, we headed to Disney World on the day we promised, and it was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. And then he says, in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. He says, when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, I held her, and I said, so how was your first day at Disney World? And she closed her eyes and snuggled up to her giant stuffed unicorn. And then she opened her eyes after a few minutes and she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of outrageous grace. That's the message of Joseph and the message of Jesus, it's not because you're good, it's because you're His. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Joseph says, you don't need to be distressed or angry with yourselves at your sins. God sent me, God sent Jesus ahead of you to preserve life. And even today, the resurrected Jesus continues to embody the heart of the Father. He runs to those who work to change their hearts, 
the smallest of steps can be enough. The first inkling of heart change, the first tiny act of repentance can be the raindrop that causes the river of God's grace to burst its dam, flood its banks, and sweep away all our sin and shame. Today, let's put aside our pursuit of the superficial and instead to seek to develop a heart that loves and mirrors the Father's heart for us, not because we are good, but because we are His. Thanks be to God. Amen.